with you. Would you please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 1, that old traditional Christmas passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning as we study the Word together. Uh, this morning our focus is on the Advent theme of joy. I grew up in Oklahoma. Don't know if you know this about Oklahoma. There's not a lot of coastline in that state. And I remember very vividly the first time I ever saw the ocean. It was, it was a big deal for uh, a little boy. Uh, we were uh, on the Gulf Coast in Texas. I was just mesmerized by it. And then as I grew up and just on random trips, these fleeting opportunities in which I got to see the ocean, Again, I just remember thinking to myself, how could you ever get tired of this? Like, if you lived by the ocean, would that ever become old? Would you ever grow bored of it? I couldn't imagine someone ever getting tired of it. Now that I live in proximity to the ocean, I haven't lost the awe of it yet. But surely someone has in this area. I mean, you can imagine with me the person who was at one time enamored by the ocean only now to find it an inconvenience or it's out of the way or it's avoidable or it's just forgettable altogether. It's just not a big deal. And it happens all too often in our lives that things that we once praised, things that we once loved, well, that praise and that love just sort of fades away. So it could be the ocean, it could be mountains, could be your job, could be a relationship, and it happens all too often in our relationship with God. It's common that Christian people lose their praise of God. There's a lot of reasons why that might happen. Sin has a way of silencing our praise. Hardships, sorrows rob us of our songs. Sometimes we're just distracted, life just gets busy, and uh, the praise of God feels like a chore, not a delight, and so it just gets left to the wayside. We forget, we have spiritual amnesia. Uh, we forget the awe we first felt when we met Christ, or we forget the relief from the forgiveness of our sins. We forget how emotional it was when we learned that he loved us and he died for us. And so, as a result, we lose our song. I mean, sure, we'll sing at church, but that's easy to fake, especially when you wear a mask. You just chew some gum and everyone thinks you're singing along with the rest of the group. But we can do that. We can sing the songs or fake the songs and then step back into our praiseless lives and things never really change. I wonder if that's you today. Do you come in here without joy in the Lord, without praise in your life for who He is and what He's done for you? If so, then you're the one that Paul is speaking to this morning in 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul is going to use Advent language to describe the glorious, amazing love of God for you, and then he's going to invite you in to his song of praise. In the opening lines of this letter to Timothy, Paul is calling Timothy and all the other readers like us to worship along with him. His goal in the section we're going to study this morning is to bring you to a place of praise and joy in the Lord as you remember who he is and what he's done for you. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to give you a song to sing. Not just any song, but a song of joyful praise to God for the work that he's done in your life. 
And Paul gives us three reasons for us to praise God with great joy. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul writes this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives us a song to sing in this passage. Three reasons for us to join him in this choir of joyful people. So what are those three reasons? The first reason you should be living a life of praise today is because Jesus came to us. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world. I mean, that's a line that we can barely make sense of. Who is Christ Jesus, the one who came? Well, the word Christ is a title. It's not his name. We talked a little bit about it last week. It, the word Christ is a, a Greek term. It's Hebrew equivalent is the word Messiah, and the title means anointed one. It's the way the Bible describes the one who would redeem people from their sin and reign forever. Christ is not a title that someone aspires to. It's not a title that someone achieves. It's the descriptor of the one who is fully God. This title tells us that the Christ is not like us. He exists beyond us. He transcends creation. Uh, the Apostle John opens his gospel speaking of the otherness of Jesus. Listen to these familiar words from John 1, 1 through 4. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the Christ is not one who was created. Rather, He is the creator of all things, and He is the one who has given life to all things. He creates and He sustains every single thing. So to be Christ is to be wholly other than what we are. But not only is He Christ, He's also Jesus. Right? Christ is the divine title. Jesus is His human name. Christ Jesus came into the world. When Christ Jesus came into the world, he didn't cease being divine. He didn't pause his divinity, nor did he divide his godness so as to become half man and half God. One of the great mysteries of the incarnation is that he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And how did he come into the world? How should God enter the scene? If you and I were writing the story, we would have him come with legions of angels and fiery chariots and lightning and volcanoes, but not this first time. He was born to peasant parents wrapped in cloths and laid in a feed trough that was being used as a substitute cradle. And why did he come into the world? Well, Paul tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. When do you think his mission to save sinners became clear? 
Was the incarnation a knee-jerk reaction on the part of God the Father who just suddenly realized, oh, this world is messed up and we've got to do something about it. Quick, God the Son, go fix this. Is that, is that when his mission became clear? N- not at all. God doesn't operate like we do. He knew all along what creation would cost him. When the Creator said, let there be light, He had already committed Himself to the cross. He was already committed to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came from the eternal glory of His throne in heaven to go all the way to the horror of the cross. What's it like to go from unlimited God to limited man? How far is the distance from heaven to the cross. He went from the highest place to the lowest place, and we can't measure that in miles or in light years. I think we can only measure it by essence. He humbled himself completely and became a man, not just any man, but a man despised and rejected all the way to the naked, suffocating torture of the cross. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How seldom do we sit under the infinite weight of that trustworthy saying? We have kids to drive, Zoom meetings to endure, and snow to shovel, and food to cook, bills to pay, laundry to fold, church to attend, phone calls to make, TV to watch. We are so easily distracted from the incarnation. And our soul-sucking franticness never produces praise. But a few moments of intentional stillness and focus on Christ Jesus who came into the world to save sinners, and then we find our hallelujahs. Why should we praise Him today? Because He came to us. It's a wonder He came to save sinners. There's a second reason we should praise Him. Paul tells us we should praise Him because Jesus saved me. If you're a Christian, this one line is your testimony. And this is your prompt to sing. Why should you praise God? Why should you be a person marked by joy? Because Jesus saved me. So Paul's amazed not just that Jesus came, but that Jesus came for him. He personalizes the purpose of Christ's coming. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He repeats that phrase twice in this section, of whom I am the worst. Paul names his sin in verse 13. We didn't read it in our passage, but you can look at it with me. In verse 13, he says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I I don't think Paul is speaking in hyperbole. I think he really believes what he says here, that he is the worst of all sinners, the least likely of all people on planet earth to meet the mercy and the patience of Jesus Christ. And to help illustrate his point, a little earlier in chapter 1, he's rattled off a long list of sinners, the types of people who break God's law. It's all of us. All of us are lawbreakers. But I want you to keep in mind what Paul says of himself as I read to you this list of sinful people from verse 9, starting in verse 9. 
There he describes the ways in which the law of God identifies us as lawbreakers. Paul writes, We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching of the Word. Oftentimes, what the church has done is we've parachuted into 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we've used this descriptor to condemn. And is that how Paul is using this list? He says, I'm the worst of sinners. We've condemned people with these names. It's, it's so easy to look at this list of sinners and think that we are different, that we're not like them. And the only way that's true is if you number yourself with Paul, who considers himself worse than all of these. The glory of Christ's coming is not that he saves good people or religious people or he saves those who are better than worse people or those who are trying their hardest. The glory of Christ's coming is that he saves people like us. We're named in this list. We're numbered among these sinners who are not worthy of the mercy and the patience that we've been shown. Now, have you considered the horror of your sin against God? That's probably not a place you want to dwell long. You don't want to meditate long on those things. But I think sometimes there's a moment, whether we are lost in sin we just need to remember to repent from our self-righteousness and our self-centeredness. There's a time when we should slow down and remember how far we've truly been from the cross. We didn't find him. He found us. We didn't pray to him. He came to us. We didn't tell him we need you. He came and died in our place for our sin. Salvation is all of Christ. He's the prime mover in every part of it. And it's not because of anything you've done or he saw potential in us or he knew we'd be better than others. We're the worst of sinners. And Christ came and he saved us. What do you get when you realize just how truly awful your sin is and you realize that even so, Jesus still came to save you? You know know what you get? You get a song of praise. Psalm 107 gives us the words to that song. It says this, it says, fools suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and iniquity. Who are the fools in verse 17? That's that's us. They loathed all food and came near the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He sent his word and healed them. He rescued them from their traps. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. Let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and announce his works with shouts of joy. Now the choir of heaven is composed of saved sinners like Paul, like me, like you. And we have a reason to praise God. We've been saved from our sin. Why should you praise him? He came to us. He saved us. Third reason in this passage is because Jesus extends eternal life. He extends eternal life. Verse 16 is a long sentence. Paul's the master of the run-on sentence. And so let's, let's work to make sense of it together. Paul says this in verse 16. He says, But for that very reason I was shown mercy. For what reason was Paul shown mercy? 
Well, he was shown mercy because of his great sin. I'm the worst of sinners. For that very reason, I was shown mercy. Now, was that only for Paul's sake? Was Paul shown mercy only for the sake of Paul? No. Paul says he was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, Jesus saved Paul so that we would say, well, if Jesus has the mercy and patience to save a sinner like Paul, surely he would save me also. Paul's life is a testimony to the grace and the saving power of Jesus Christ because Jesus still has eternal life to give. Paul's salvation was not just for the sake of Paul. It was for the sake of all who would hear his testimony. And isn't that true for you and I as well? Our salvation is not just for us. It is for others. Eternal life is extended to those around us. So it begs the question of each and every one of us this morning. Have you received eternal life? Do you have a testimony of God's saving work in your life? Your answer might be this, I don't know, but I'm doing my best. And I don't doubt that at all. I think most people do their best when they think about their relationship with God. We're not really sure where we stand. We know we're not the worst people. We know we're not the best people, but I'm going to do my best and surely that will earn me something with God, some good, some kindness from Him. But is that what the Bible tells us? Have we read this morning, Christ came into the world so that sinners could do their best and maybe squeak by at the end of all things? Is that what we read? No? We read that He came to save. It's definitive. It's knowable. It's strong. It's believable. Christ came to save. Not to enable you to save yourself, but so that you would rely on or trust in the one who can do the saving for you. If the message of Christmas is that we'll get by just by doing our best, then Christmas is a sham. Christ came to save you, and here's how he does that. He is God the Son who was born of the Virgin Mary. That's a big deal because it tells us he is God and he is man at the same time. And since he's fully God and fully man, he lived a sinless life, and that makes him the only one qualified to die in your place for your sin. Jesus alone, no one else, Jesus alone is the perfect sacrificial lamb of God for your sin. And he laid down his life for you. He died on the cross in your place for your sin, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And here's the promise he makes. If you will turn to him, if you'll repent, turn from all of your sin, all of your religious things, the ways in which you've been doing your best, if you'll just turn away from all of that, and you'll go all in on Jesus Christ. You're going to trust him, the one who died and rose again, to forgive you and save you and hold you forever. And you'll follow him with your life. You're saved. You're his child. You're forgiven. You're made new. You, the worst of sinners, now becomes the righteousness of God. Because there's this huge, incredible exchange that takes place when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. He takes all of our sin and all of its punishment. And in exchange, he gives us his holiness 
in his eternal reward, his eternal life. Don't you want that? You, you can know today that that's yours. You don't have to walk out of here wondering, questioning whether or not you've got it. Because you'll know, I'm not good enough. I can't do well enough to get God to come my way. I just got to trust only in Jesus Christ. And that's where we find salvation. If, if I were you, I wouldn't want to leave this building without having my eternity set this morning. And so you can do that through a simple prayer. Just in your own words, you don't need me, a pastor, you don't need a priest, some human person to be a mediator between you and God. Your only mediator is Jesus Christ. And so you go to him and in your own words, he knows your heart already, just in your own words. Jesus, I love you. I trust you. I know you died and rose again. Forgive me and make me yours and, and your life is different forever. A journey of discipleship begins at that point, but your eternity is set when you say yes to Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are already Christians, verse 16 has a missional component to it. Paul is saying that what Christ has done in our lives is not solely for us, but rather it's a message to others that what Christ has done for us, he will do for them. In the verses just before our passage, Paul described his awe that God had called him into his service. Paul's amazed that he has this mission given to him. And so, friend, I don't want you to miss this point. You cannot divorce your being saved from your being sent. To know Christ is to speak Christ and to extend eternal life to those who will hear and live. So why should you praise God? Because Jesus came to us. He saved us. He extends eternal life. And when we get to the end of that, the thing that we're left with is the praise of God. The last part of this passage, God is praised. So what comes last in our passage is not a reason to praise. It's the act of praising God. And so having told the story of Christ's mercy to him, Paul responds in a remarkable way. Look at verse 17 with me. He says this. Now to the God eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Whatever. Is that how we should read verse 17? I mean, if you're just trying to plow through your Bible in a year reading, maybe. But if you're going to really interact with the text and try to imagine Paul's tone in this moment, when, when Paul gets to verse 17, he's told... Us. Christ came to save sinners. I'm the worst of them. He showed me his unlimited patience for the sake of eternal life to others. And when he gets to verse 17, Paul's head explodes. He erupts in praise to God. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul tells his gospel story, and then he runs a victory lap. It never got old to him. He never lost the awe and the wonder that Christ came to save a sinner like him. And so joy and praise are the natural overflow in Paul's life. And in giving us this song, he invites us into that with him. Because you've got a story also, don't you? Christ has saved you. He's rescued you. And so you have reason to praise. And here's a script you might follow to get that done. I mean, how incredible is it 
that we get the mercy and God gets the glory. We get the joy and God gets the praise. We get the hope and God gets the honor. It's the best of all possible worlds that God would set the universe up in this sort of way for his praise and his glory and his honor to be the result of our joy and our hope. It's just amazing. We've got to sing. So Paul's given us three reasons to praise God at Christmas. Jesus has come, he saves sinners, and he offers eternal life to all those who hear him and say yes to him. So I wonder, how's your singing voice these days? How often are you praising God for his work in your life? How frequent does your joy in the Lord come out in natural conversation or praying? Do you create spaces in your hectic life to be still with God, to remember his love to you, to thank and praise him? Has your praise been quieted because of sin or perhaps because of other distractions? Maybe you're going through a particularly difficult time and so you just don't feel like praising God. One of the most debilitating things about suffering is how self-centered it can make us. Satan scores a double win when he can afflict you and silence you. Suffering has never silenced the church. God's people have always been a praising people, even when it is a sacrifice of praise. The Bible is overflowing with examples of people who experienced God and responded with praise. Let me show you a few examples. After Israel was delivered by God at the Red Sea, Moses sang in Exodus 15:2, "The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God and I will exalt him." In Judges 5, verse 3, Deborah sings after God's deliverance of Israel from King Jabin of Canaan. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praises to the Lord God of Israel. When the Virgin Mary found that she was carrying the Christ child, her response in Luke 1.46 was this, My soul magnifies the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, All the redeemed sing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. What will it look like for you to live a life of praise to God? You need two things. First, you need a revelation from God. Second, you need a response. I've got to see God. I've got to experience God. And then I respond in praise. So where does that revelation come from? Well, the praise of God always comes as a result of a revelation of Him, first and foremost, from His Word. The Word of God shows us who He is and what He's done on our behalf and for the sake of His glory. But it's not just from His Word, but also from our very lives where we see the revelation of God at work. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament and you've got your own testament as well of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ where he has met you in time and space to deliver you, to rescue you, to give you strength. What has God done for you? 
Did he protect you even though you didn't ask? Has he delivered you from the power of sin? Has he forgiven you and made you a new woman or a new man? Has he healed your marriage? Has he satisfied you in your singleness? Has he brought you through sickness? Is he walking with you through grief? Has he given you wisdom when you asked? Has he given you your daily bread? Has he put in your heart an assurance and expectation of heaven? Friend, what has the Lord done for you? That's your revelation. Now it's time for your response. And how will you praise him? You're going to praise him in two directions. First, we praise God directly by singing or speaking to him. Psalm 71 verse 22 says, I will praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing to you with a lyre, Holy One of Israel. We praise him with our church family and at other times. We praise him in our homes and on our commutes while shoveling snow or while laying in bed. Wherever you are when you are struck by a memory of God's faithfulness in Christ, well, that place is your sanctuary. That's the time to lift your voice to God in praise in song or in speech. We praise in two directions, directly to God and second, through testimony to others. This is the heart of what Paul has written to Timothy. He tells Timothy and us of God's faithfulness in Christ. And then Paul praises God for Timothy and us to hear and experience. So when we tell the stories of God's mighty acts, we're like the speaker in Psalm 66, 5, who said, come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. So your family and your friends will all know what God is doing in your life because you will praise God to them. You will tell them, just as Paul told Timothy and all of us, what God has done for you. When they ask the benign question, the mindless question, how are you doing? You're locked and loaded with words of God, with what he has done for you. Not to be weird, not to be a creep, but because it's the natural overflow of your speech, God has been so good to you, they need to hear it because they need to experience it themselves. Has God been good to you? Have you told Him about it? Have you told others about it? Isn't the Lord worthy of your praise? He is. The book of Psalms closes with this final, ultimate line. The last line of the book of Psalms. You know what it is? Psalm 150 verse 6 declares, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Are you breathing? It's time to sing. Let's pray together. Father God, to you, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God, forgive us when we come to you exclusively with our shopping carts and our needs. It's not sinful for us to ask you to meet our need. You're glorified in that. You're honored in that. But sometimes we lose sight of our praise. Remind us today. And give us that song to sing again. That we would exalt your name. 
give you the honor and glory you're due to the best of our ability to practice now in song and speech for what heaven will be like. God, I pray that out of the overflow of our love for you, that a testimony would go throughout our communities, our homes and in our families, to our friends, of how good you are and how incredible salvation is, how free it is. So, Father, be honored and glorified. I pray for my friends in here that don't know you. Let this be the last day that could be said of them. Let this be the day they can say with confidence, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Father, give them the courage, the strength this morning to say yes to you. Give us all your courage to say yes to you. You've said yes to us, and we praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together and let's sing.